So we are going to continue in our series this morning in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're in Matthew chapter 7, um, and we are going to be looking at just a few verses this morning. Again, we're in the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, and in the conclusion, um, Jesus is hitting on a few things that are important as he wraps the whole thing up and ties it all together. I want to read the first verse, and then we're going to wait to read the rest of the verses as we jump into this. But the first verse... says this, Matthew 7, verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So beware. We know what this passage is going to be about. It's about caution. And there's something very dangerous out there that we have to look out for. And it is these false prophets. Uh, The language of the word false prophets here, it isn't applying to, you know how like you try really hard to do something well and then you come to find out that you're not doing a very good job of it and somebody might say, you're not even really this, right? Like let's say you want to teach and you want to be a teacher and you try really hard and then one day somebody might say, like, you know, you're so bad at this, you couldn't even really call yourself a teacher or something like that. That's not what this means by false prophet, somebody who doesn't actually do it. This is intentionally someone who, who goes out and is misrepresenting the message they have or what they're doing to be something that it is not, which is why we have to watch out for them and they can apparently cause a lot of damage. Now, to give you a little bit of an understanding of what these people were like, these false prophets or these prophets of any kind, it was very common in ancient times and then also the time of the New Testament when Jesus is talking right here. For prophets to travel from town to town and visit synagogues, and a prophet would come and they would share a message or a word from the Lord, a message of rebuke or of encouragement or of hope. And as they would share it, then uh, people usually would give them some food, give them maybe a place to stay, and then they would move on to the next place the next day or maybe two days later. Prophets lived very, uh, very solitary lives. They were constantly moving. They didn't have money. They didn't have food. To be a prophet was ultimately something that was a very difficult, lonely endeavor, a calling, really, a difficult, lonely calling. And um, something else that's interesting is this phrase that Jesus uses, a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? There's some meaning behind this. You see, at the time that he was saying this, there were a lot of sheep around, And uh, sheep need something. They depend very heavily on something called a shepherd. Turns out sheep aren't very good at finding food or finding water or not falling off of the edge of cliffs if they get too close to them. And that's why they need shepherds. They're totally dependent upon someone to care for them or to guide them or show them the way. And that really hasn't changed even now in modern times. I used to live, we used to live in a city called Rockland. And in Rockland, it was this suburb and it had all these open spaces everywhere. And these weeds would grow up and, and, and they would just be there for a long time. And they would get all dry and dead and nobody liked looking at them. And so one of the ways they would deal with it was like this. And we used to live by one of these green spaces. It was in our backyard and uh, up on this, up past this hill. And one morning, if you walk out at the right time and you look at the right time, you see this. Um, and I made, I took a video of it with my phone. I wake up one morning and I look out our kitchen window and up on the top of the hill in the back of our house is sheep. And what they do is there's a shepherd in town who moves a huge flock of sheep from green space to green space, and then they just set up a little fence, a border, and they eat everything they can for like a week, and then they move them to another place. Sometimes you'd be driving in the middle of the day, they would stop traffic, and a shepherd with a flock of sheep would cross like a very busy intersection 
onto the next open space. And everybody would get excited. This, like I said, this is a suburb. There's lots of families, lots of kids. So people get so excited the sheep are coming. We never knew when they were coming. You would just be working in your backyard. I'd be working in my backyard. I'd hear a single cowbell sound. And I would look up on our hill and then be terrified because there's hundreds of sheep like on our hill, way closer than this, just all over it, eating all the dead grass. And, and our kids went crazy. They loved it, right? And, and, and so there's families and kids everywhere. So people love the sheep. They want to go see them all the time, right? This is so fun. They're so adorable and probably soft and cuddly and wonderful. And, uh, and so you always would go up to their sheep enclosures and then you would kind of stop because with all the advances in technology that we have, with all the water trucks they can bring them and all the fences that they can set up for them, the one thing that they still have, that they always had, is they have a shepherd. And when you see this guy, you're like, ah, okay, kids, this was fun. Let's go ahead and go somewhere else now. He wasn't like the, hey, everyone, bring all the kids by and we'll take pictures of the sheep and you can sit on their back. He was like, get away, leave us alone. We don't want your kids around our sheep. They'll probably bite their fingers off or something. That's what a shepherd does. A shepherd's there to protect the sheep. Now, a good shepherd, here it is, it's simple. A good shepherd cares about the sheep more than they care about themselves. And a bad shepherd doesn't care about the sheep, but just cares about themselves. That is ultimately the single biggest characteristic of a good or a bad shepherd. Now, the shepherds wore something. They actually would shear, cut the hide off of some of their sheep. They would make coats out of them because, believe it or not, they had an abundance of sheep and wool. And they looked at it and went, that looks pretty warm. And it would get very cold where they lived at times of the year. So they actually made coats out of the hide of sheep. They would cut off the hide. They would turn it inside out because obviously that's a lot warmer. And they would wear it inside out as a big coat. And... Uh, and this was a very cheap kind of a coat to have. They probably had several types of things like this on hand. And so when prophets came from town to town and were totally dependent on the people of the church to provide what they needed, it wasn't uncommon for a prophet themselves to get one of these coats. Prophets were often dressed in sheepskin, in the wool of sheep. And so this language that Jesus is using is combining two very important things. One, that's how they thought of prophets. These are guys that wear sheepskin. These are guys that speak to God's flock and God's people, and they do so hopefully for the benefit of his people. But then also, what would happen were a wolf to come into the sheep's pen? What would that wolf do? That wolf would devour the sheep. There's something about these prophets, these false prophets, that is so dangerous that we have to be very careful of them, lest they devour us. Not lest they be a waste of our time. Or we wish we could have done something else with our day, or, oh, that wasn't a good one this time around. No. There's great danger in listening to these false prophets because they can lead you astray. They can lead you away, over the cliff, away from the fold, away from the health of the food and the water and the protection of the good shepherd that you ultimately need. So here is how you could tell a bad one, a false prophet, from a good one. Their fruits. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree bears good fruit, but diseased trees bear bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus says you'll know these prophets, how? By the results 
of what they do, by their fruit, by what is produced from their lives and from their ministry and from their message. Now, here's what's so interesting about this. What he doesn't say here is you will know their false prophets by their message. There are other parts of the scripture that tell us how to discern the gospel from things that aren't the gospel and truth of God from things that aren't truth of God. And those are important. But here, Jesus is specifically saying, how are you going to know who to watch out for and who not to? It's easy. It's by their fruit. And what does the bad fruit look like versus the good fruit? Well, at the time, here's how they could tell. When a prophet showed up in the synagogue and began to teach, and then they finished their message. What was appropriate was for the prophet to be given some food, a place to stay, and then to leave. But instead, there were some prophets who came, and they had these really great reasons why they needed more than just a little food, why they needed more than just a little bit of money to live off of for a day, why they needed more than a place to stay for one night. Hey, would it be okay with you guys if I stick around for a while and kind of, you know, I like it here. You seem like nice people. These prophets were uh, taking on things that were beyond what was appropriate to take on. The fruit of their ministry and what they did was ultimately things for them. They taught for gain. They taught for what they could get out of it, for what they could benefit from it, not what the sheep could benefit from it, not from the people of God could benefit from it. When you shepherd others, you are called to be about them, their needs, what they need. Your concerns are for them. Their hurts are your hurts. Their flourishing and their health is what brings you joy. You're there for them. That's why God's brought you there, is for the sake of that flock. But these false prophets weren't there for the sake of this flock, and they also weren't there for the sake of the kingdom. They were there for themselves. I mean, they figured, hey, this is a pretty easy way to make a life. I can go around, I can speak, I can share things with people, and I can ask them for some money. I can have a place to stay. And what's interesting is if you were able to prophesy in such a way, if you were able to teach in such a way that made people really, really like you, that made them really, really want to, you know, have you stick around for longer than the prophet ought to. These aren't pastors. These aren't shepherds. These aren't the actual Jewish teachers and leaders of the synagogues. These are the traveling prophets who would offer a word and then leave. And, and, and their message and their, their manner and their way of approaching and doing things made people want them to stick around, made people want them to want to give them more and take care of them and do more for them than maybe the others. That was a sign. Think of the kinds of things that they would have to say, <coughs> the kinds of message that they would have to have in order to appeal to the people to that degree. These false prophets, they taught for food, they taught for money, they taught for comfort, but they also taught for prestige. People loved them. They taught for their name to be glorified. Appreciation, gratitude, recognition, respect. It has to be experienced all times or this false prophet cannot truly be what they want to be. This is their kingdom. This is not God's kingdom. When a false prophet comes with a message for God's people, the people leave saying, aren't they great? Instead of the people leaving saying, isn't God great? Isn't God's kingdom great? It's divine plagiarism. 
So this is their bad fruit. This is the bad fruit. What the bad fruit looks like for the prophets of the time was simple. They went and they taught and they served and people liked them and gave them and it was about them. It was for them. That's the fruit that their ministry produced. It wasn't for the kingdom. It wasn't for the people, the sake of the health of that body. It was for the prophet. Now, we live in a very different day and age. We live in a day and age in which there are, the church has grown significantly. Christianity itself has so many groups, denominations, even different sects of Christianity, different types of churches, that there is an opportunity for you to find one that best associates with what you believe to be the most true things that are taught, what you believe to be the most true way that we should worship and gather as a family and a community and be together in that. And those groups actually do a pretty good job of monitoring who's coming in and who's talking. We do it here. We don't just say to people, hey, we don't, that door right there isn't next to the bus stop so somebody can get off the bus and they can hop up here and be like, all right, here we go. Let's see how this goes. No, we actually care a lot about that. And that is how churches operate today. And that is a good thing. We, 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 have a, we have a strong sense of like, of like what is the gospel, and we've talked about that a lot, that as a church, we want to care about that and protect that and think about that. And so we can't take this and say, okay, guys, it's easy, all right? If somebody gets up here, listen to what they say, think if they're a good prophet or not, and then that's it. Because we don't live in a culture that operates that way anymore. But there is something very unique that has happened in the world in which we live today, which is this. There are so many voices and there are so many people that are telling us things about how we are to live and about God and about things that we are to believe and we are to do and act and live out of that have nothing to do with the time that we spend in this room. And because of the way that human beings are, we actually, believe it or not, form a lot of what we believe and how we think life ought to work and the way the world does work based off of a lot more than just what we hear about in church. I have accepted the fact that you guys aren't going 100% just off of what ha- is happening right now every week, that there's a lot of other information that you're taking in to figure out how to make life work. I learned this with my kids. My son's like six years old. We've, I'm, like, I'm pretty sure we taught him everything, right? I mean, he's, I mean who, else is he, who else is he like, like what people? But, but my son, like the other day, he started doing this. He was just starts doing this the other day. And I'm like, what is he doing? And he's like doing this. Raylene, does this look familiar? Does, do they all do this? Yeah, okay, this is like a thing. And I'm like, that doesn't, that's not a move in our house. That's not a thing I do. That's not a thing Ellie does. It's not like somebody scores a point and you're like, yeah, you know, that's not a thing that we do. Pretty sure this is a DJ. I think it's a DJ. But you know what that does seem like? That seems like what a bunch of six-year-old kids would do when they're either eating lunch or on a playground together, right? And uh, we had a birthday party for him. A bunch of his friends came. Music turned on. Sure enough, what do they all start doing is this, right? right? We're pretty impressionable. We take on a lot from the people around us, a lot of the voices around us. It's not just the authority in our life that teach us everything. It's a lot of other people. Now, we live in a day and age in which technology and which the connectedness of people has made it possible for us to be exposed to a vast amount of people and perspectives and voices and opinions. And this very thing of good and bad fruit applies so powerfully to that because how do we really sift through the message of every single one of those people and those things? Especially if sometimes God wants us to hear things that are going to kind of shock us. That's one of the things the prophets would sometimes do. And I think that's why Jesus uses this here rather than just the message because there were times the prophets would come and say things and the people would be like, whoa, that's pretty extreme. But it was what God wanted them to say. 
There are so many people, we have control here, but all you have to do is walk outside. You can walk even into Christian things. We have Christian bookstores, Christian blogs, Christian websites, after website, after website. We have podcast, after podcast, after podcast. We have teachers, we have personalities, we have TV shows, we have celebrities. And this is just the Christian stuff. And we have all those things that don't even identify themselves as Christians, and it's the same kind of a role, and the same kind of thing. There are so many people, and so many are good. Do not get me wrong. So many are good, and so much is valuable. But so many are not. I mean, I can make a list, like pages and pages long, of all of the ones that I've listened to, that I listen to, that I hear, that I see. The Francis Chans, and the Mark Driscolls, and the John MacArthur's, the Joyce Myers and the Franklin Grahams and the Jen Hatmakers and the the TV channels, TBN and CNN and Fox News and people like Oprah and Ellen and presidents and community leaders and and elected officials and reality TV stars and athletes. And when we're, I mean, we live in a culture in which you are famous for being famous, right? And we hear from people. And when we're honest, what validates that place in my ears and in my mind? So often it is. They're successful, they've done well, which means they have a lot of money, or for some reason, whenever I I listen, whenever I read, whenever I see, I walk away and I'm like, they're so great. That person is so, I love them, they're great. You should see them, you should hear them, you should follow them, you should read them. They're great, it's awesome right? Does that sound kind of familiar? These are the voices that influence us every day. And we all choose to listen to a lot of these, and we take what they have to say about who we are, about our very identity, about our life, about our families, about God, about everything. And even though most of them do not claim to be prophets, we listen to them like they are. And so here is the question. This is incredibly simple because I do think what Jesus is talking about applies so much today that we could take it in almost a black and white sense, okay? How much money are they getting for what they're saying? Okay, that's number one. Is the message that they're bringing to me making them wealthy? If so, I should question a little bit what they're saying. Honestly. Number two, do they look good? Are they glorified? Is that what everyone is really excited about doing with this person? Is everyone really excited about them? Is everyone really on their team? Or do people walk away saying, God is glorified, God is great, the kingdom is amazing? This is a very real thing that we have to ask. And this is the difference between the good fruit and the bad fruit because we have little value for people who God is not enough for them and so they need other people to say you're great. That is not a great voice to listen to when it comes to matters of life and faith and and, and so many of the things we listen to. There's an author named Brennan Manning and he says this, and and he puts it incredibly well in several of his books when he talks about this thing called the downward mobility of Jesus. He says, as you follow Jesus, to do what he calls you to do, it will probably involve sacrifice, it will involve suffering, it will involve pain. How do we know that? Well, because like 25% of what Jesus said was literally that, and then 100% of what the disciples and the apostles did was that. 
And, and that we have to know that it will feel like downward mobility. Everyone else is moving up in life, and it feels like things might be getting harder. We might be making choices that involve some difficult sacrifice for us. And, and, that's an, and we can be encouraged by knowing it doesn't mean you're on the wrong track. Because God often calls people to do things that then make life harder and then involve some kind of sacrifice. I mean, the, the, the point is, some of the people, the people who are doing the most for the kingdom, we are not looking at those people for them. We are not congratulating them and high-fiving them and saying, you're great. Because they're doing so much for the kingdom or they're, or they're dedicated to seeing so much happen for the kingdom that all we're seeing is the kingdom and that that's a good thing. We read about this We read about this in, um, in, in, uh, when Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. They've had some false prophets come in, some false teachers. And Paul goes, kind of goes after these guys, and he says, don't listen to them, don't listen to them. And then he gets kind of defensive, and he says, here's why you should listen to me and not them. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. Don't use this because I just coughed on it. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work in the same terms, on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds." What Paul is saying, is he saying these guys who have such an impressive name amongst you, there's a reason that it's so impressive. And, and if you want to listen to me versus them, I have gone to great lengths to not make money off of you, and they have gone to great lengths to make money off of you. He is using this exact same argument to talk about the validity of service for the gospel, and it is because of the power of what Jesus is saying here. Now, there is an aspect of this that that, that pertains to us, the church, and how we live and what we do that is also very important. And here will probably be a good example of like, now I'll say something that'll make you upset, okay? And then you won't like me, and hopefully you'll think more of the kingdom. We'll see. There's an author named Russell Moore, and Russell Moore is the head of the Southern Baptist Convention. Like, he's sort of the guy that goes on the news as like the public face to kind of answer questions on behalf of Christians and evangelical Christians in America, largely. Um, he is very well-spoken, and he has thought a lot about what God is doing in the church in America and has been doing. And he wrote a book recently called Onward, which is encouraging, right? Onward. And the subtitle of the book is how we have moved from, a, or, or Christianity is something has moved from a moral majority to a prophetic minority, and how we live in light of that. Now, you might hear that and go, that's frustrating for me to hear. That makes me angry that you would imply that we might have at one point been a majority and now we're some kind of a minority. But the point that he makes, and I think this is so incredibly true when you look at the church in the world today, specifically in America today, really, is the idea that at one point we were able to band together with lots of other groups of like-minded, religious-minded people 
for the sake of values and for the sake of, of having this sort of moral majority in our country, especially at a time when we recognized the morals were like slipping. And so as we banded together, though, we said we will unite about these values, not necessarily because we all share the same gospel of Jesus, but for these values. But what that often did come at the cost of was lifting up high enough the gospel of Jesus himself, right? And often feeling like we've won this battle over here, but I'm not sure how well we're doing with the gospel of Jesus. And now as we've seen those values themselves decline in their popularity in our country more and more, that less people just simply identify themselves naturally with the traditions and the values that we hold, we feel, we recognize that we're in a place of being what would be called a prophetic minority. Now, when I say minority, don't hear me incorrectly and think that that means that we're losing, that we're in defense or anything like that, because here's the good news. What Jesus says to Peter is this. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We know that because of where we're at as a church, it does not mean that we're losing, but it means that this is where God has us. And so to understand where we are is is important for us to live that out, for us to say, how then do we operate in this way? We live as a group of people who are prophets. We live as a group of people, and prophets are not people who go around saying all the, all the hard, scary, sad stuff all the time, although there's an aspect of that. Prophets aren't just people who are disliked, believe it or not. Prophets offer messages of hope and redemption. They point out and remind us what God has said and what he's going to do. There are good prophets who point out to us that Christianity has at times been represented by catacombs where people lived in hiding and prisons. And it has also been represented at times by cathedrals and by big churches and by the, by the abundance that we've seen in that. Many of us, all of us, probably would not know the gospel, have heard the gospel, were not for some of those big things, as much as we like to think sometimes that God works in the small things more than anything. What we see is that he's a God who's worked in all of it. And what we see is that the role of a prophet is to say, this is who God is, and this is his kingdom And this is Jesus, and this is the gospel, and the hope that we have. That we live as sojourners, as exiles, as people who say that we live for a greater hope and something else. We don't live in fear, but we live as as prophets. Now, there's the bad kind of prophet. There's people like Jonah, who was like, I don't want to go, and I'm happy to give a message of God's condemnation and God's wrath, but I don't want to see these people convert. I don't want to see these people repent. That's like when you're done. Sounds like I'm just, we're done. I think we're all done. That's fair. That's fair. We'll move on. Next point. That's all it takes. I'm done. You're like, we never knew. So if we as a church are a group of people that God is called to be a prophetic voice in this country in which we live, in this city in which we live, then how, does our, how is our fruit being produced? What fruit is being produced that people can look at and they can say, I see that this is a good prophet. I see that these are people who are speaking on behalf of God. I see that these people's motives are what they say that they are. That is the question that we have to ask of ourselves. What does it mean to be fruitful as the church? Well, it means the gospel is preached, 
It means people are coming to faith. Fruitfulness implies multiplication. It implies abundance that goes beyond just almost one generation, right? It's the idea, the difference between like a tree that Jesus is talking about that is fruitful and one that is not is the idea of a seed that grows into a tree that bears a fruit that falls, that is a seed that grows into a tree that bears a fruit again and again and again and again. And so fruitfulness is the gospel being preached, people coming to faith, those people sharing the gospel, people coming to faith, people being discipled, but not just for themselves and for their own benefit because of me and what I want and my glorification or my life being better, but rather even sometimes the self-denial that comes from saying, all the time, the self-denial that comes from saying, I'm called then to go make disciples, to go lead people to Jesus and for people to hear the faith. This is fruitfulness. Is this the fruitfulness that we exhibit? We ask this of ourselves as individuals. Is this the fruitfulness that my life exhibits? We ask this of our church, OCEC. We ask this of the larger church. Is this the fruit that we see? Do we see this? And oftentimes the world looks at the church and here's what they see. They look at the church and they see big buildings and they see lots of activity and lots of stuff. They see lots of fun and enthusiasm and lots of programs. They say things for those who are inside, things that say we want to build stronger families and we want to build stronger marriages and we want to have better community and we want to care for others, each other better for ourselves. In fact, we want you, community, to come here be with us, because it would make it even better here if you did, honestly. And people look at these things often and they think, this seems self-serving. This doesn't necessarily seem to speak to others, this gospel that they're talking about. That people would look at the church and be impressed by the church rather than looking at God and being impressed by God and saying, this God that they serve must be great for them to live this way and worship this way and act this way and, and do things this way. We are united with every other human being in our city and on earth through the gospel itself. There are two components to really this fruitfulness that we see in Jesus and his ministry, in the disciples and the apostles and the way that they lived. And it was this, the gospel and people. The message of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, and bringing it to people. It will always involve other people. And that's hard for a lot of us to hear because we don't like people or we only like a few people and we don't like all the other ones, right? I mean, people are exhausting, they are messy, they take up my margin. They're, they don't grow like in a straight line like I want them to. It's like this. It's two steps forward and one step back and eight steps forward and 15 steps back. And what was I even doing anything for at any point in this relationship with this person? What's God doing in it? That's how it feels with people. And that's hard for many of us. And so we think, okay, I'm good with the gospel. Maybe I'll learn the gospel. I'll study the gospel. I'll share the gospel with some people that I like. Maybe that's what God wants me to do. We all are called to go to people. Lots of different kinds of people and lots of different spheres and the stuff, the daily stuff of our lives with them. You can't schedule out relationships that easily. You can't say, I can't say, I'm going to make sure I spend an hour a week with my son and that's when we'll have all of our quality time and then he'll look back and say, those hours were everything to me because that's not how people work. You need quantity. <coughs> And if the church exists 
to reach the lost. And Jesus didn't say, I want you to build a church for the encouragement and the learning and the community and the sanctification of everyone in it. He said, go make disciples of all the nations. And here's the beautiful thing about it. We talk about this a lot here, is that as we do that, what we come to find is we need the truth of Scripture even more. We need community with one another even more. That we need to step out in our faith and that growing in faith actually means stepping out and relying on God in these difficult things more than it does learning stuff and mastering skills and habits by ourselves. And what we find is exactly what Jesus did with the disciples, which is I'm going to call you to follow me to be fishers of men. And as you do that, you will grow in your faith because that's how they grew in their faith was following him that way. And so we know that it's not either or, but it's both and. What Jesus is showing us here in this passage is that fruit comes from a seed. And the question is, what kind of seed is there? Now, in these prophets who were false, um, the heart of what these guys were doing was bad. And so the fruit that they were producing was always going to be flawed. And you could look at that fruit and you could see what was going on. And so we asked that question. Have we experienced life-transforming grace enough that it, can be pro- pro- that it can be produced in our life? Oftentimes, those of us who can't forgive, who can't show grace, we cannot do it because we have not been forgiven and because we have not accepted the grace. We have not experienced the grace, and so we don't know how to show it. We don't know how to live it out. Those who have only experienced legalism, who have believed that being a Christian is about obeying God and being rewarded... And that then you'll, you, you know, things will be better, life will be better, you do hard things, God's happy with you, you can feel better about yourself. That's all that can be produced from that. That those going around saying big things and ascribing them to God in order to be known by people, these false prophets, God's not enough for them. They're like, God's not enough here, so I need people to like me, and I need people to approve of me, and I need people. So I'm going to go around and I'm going to say things that sound great and that that are great. And then people are going to give me what I want and then I'm going to feel better. That that's the fruit that that heart produces. If we are a church filled with people who have been redeemed by Jesus, we do all that we do in the light of his grace, then we will be compelled to go and bear fruit that reflects that. We will be like the prophet Isaiah who upon being cleansed immediately raised up his hand and said, here am I, God, send me, that what I receive from you compels me to go out. I mean, is there any better example of that than what we just heard from the Wymores? From people in this church saying, we are compelled to go out even though that requires sacrifice. That Billy Graham said in that video that there's essentially these two verbs that Jesus uses again and again, come and go, come and go. And that is what we're called to do. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us, and we sometimes miss that when you call us to do things that are difficult because we think you do it out of maybe not loving us or not caring about us, but that's not true, God. It's that you know that your kingdom is bigger than ours, that it is more significant than ours. God, our prayer is that you would give us the discernment to know the good voices from the bad all around us, to look to the fruit that are being produced by those things, and to to be careful of who we listen to and who we follow. But we also pray, Father, that you would help us 
to live as those who are producing good fruit, that this church, that our church would be a church that people would look at and they would say, I see fruit being produced, good fruit being produced, and as a result of that, I see that the message here is a real one, Lord. Father, we pray this in your name, amen. Father, we recognize that, that when you call us to live this way, to, to choose to live in a way that doesn't bring glory to ourselves, but to you, God, that you, um, you don't do so because you don't love us, it's because you also know that there is no greater joy than what can be found in living this way. That somehow in you and in your kingdom, that we can become less and you can become more and that that can still bring us a deeper sense of joy than if we were pursuing ourselves alone, God. That is the beautiful thing about you, God, that you are such a big God that you work this way. And we pray that we would pursue you for that joy and that we would experience such an abundance in it that we would gladly give up the things of ourself, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a good week.